And good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you again today, uh, if we are together. Uh, hey, before we get started on this day, I want to tell you a little bit about where we're going this summer, okay? Uh, we'll finish up our series in Mark, the Sunday before Memorial Day weekend. The Memorial Day weekend, we'll start a series uh, in the Minor Prophets called Christ and the Minor Prophets. Now, the first three of those will not be, well, they won't be a minor prophet at all. It'll be the book of Ruth. So we'll do that the last weekend in May and the first two weekends in, in June. And then we'll uh, spend four Sundays in Jonah. And Pastor Jim Ferguson is going to bring one of those to us. I'm looking forward to that. And then we'll take off into the rest of the minor prophets finishing up uh, on uh, Labor Day Sunday. Looking forward to, to being a part of that with you. After that, we're going to launch into the book of Acts, the continuing mission of the church, and see what God will teach us through uh, Luke's writing in the book of Acts. Today, we're in the book of Mark, and we're continuing this place, this story, as we're, we're moving up towards the cross of Jesus Christ. If you'll follow along with me, uh, in your Bible or on your device, if you've got that open, we'll start reading in 14, verse 43. This is the word of the Lord. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning that you would teach all of us. Father, that you would use this, this broken vessel to pour out good, clean, clear, living water for your glory, for the growth of your kingdom, for those that are believers in Christ and for those that are not yet believers in Christ. Father, if I preach anything this morning that is not from you, I pray that you would close the ears of the hearers so that all we hear is what is from our Lord on high. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You know, um, we, we speak of plans of what we want to preach on this summer and where we're going to go in the fall. Uh, so many plans. So many plans have been made and, and, and so many plans have been dashed, right? Uh, plans for graduation parties, for graduation ceremonies that didn't come to pass. Plans for summer internships. Uh, plans for spring breaks and Plans for summer vacations that might or might not be canceled. And by the way, I want to encourage you to find some way to take a vacation. Vacations are important to recharge. Uh, maybe you just need to get out of the house for a couple of weeks. All these plans, plans for a new job that you've, been interview that you've interviewed for and you're ready to take and they've put it on hold. Uh, 
your plans for what you're going to do when you get to that new job that change. I know all about that. Many of the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord directs his path. Proverbs 16. We serve a sovereign God, and that sovereign God directs our path. And he doesn't ask our permission before he does so. Is it possible for us to put together plans and then for us to control those plans? Well, no. In everything we do, we submit to a sovereign Lord. Even Jesus, when he's coming to this place in this passage, he speaks of scripture that must be fulfilled. Pastor Nathan took us to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is is speaking of this cup. And he says even uh, even though he didn't want the cup, he's willing to take the cup. And and he says, let not my will but your will be done. And he submits to the Father. Even Jesus submits to the sovereign plan put together by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world. I'm reminded of five men that had put together a very detailed plan. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, three others had had a plan to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Aka natives of Ecuador. They had they had sent um, and dropped things, uh, uh, presents, gifts to these natives in preparation of, of landing, hoping that they would gather some sort of favor. The day came when they landed their plane on the beach by the river. Their hopes were, in one sense, dashed. In another sense, they came to fruition in a way they never thought would happen. Because God took his plan and he overcame their plan. Minkiah had a different plan that day than Jim Elliott did. Minkiah was one of the Aka Indians that, that met the plane on the beach after it landed. And he and other Aka natives came at Nate Saint and Jim Elliott with their spears and their, and their arrows. And they slaughtered them there on the beach. These Ecuador five knew, they knew that that kind of thing was a possibility and yet they were willing to put aside their safety and their comfort. They were willing to risk suffering that others might come to know Jesus Christ. It is a similar place that Jesus takes us in this passage where he's put aside his safety, he's put aside his comfort and he's taken on suffering that you and I might know the hope of heaven forever. That's what love does. Sometimes we think of love in our culture and we think of it in a physical way, maybe a sexualized way, and, and we think of a kiss and a hug and things of that nature, and, and that's, that's what we think of when we think of love. But when we think of love in relation to God, it's much, much deeper. It's a different kind of love. It's a deeper, stronger, more firm, more foundational, eternal love. It's a love that acts in a sacrificial way that's willing to put aside safety and suffer for the sake of salvation. That's the kind of love we need. And that's the kind of love that we see borne out in this passage. It does begin with a kiss. Somewhat ironic, isn't it? The passage tells us that, that Judas had planned ahead of time that when he got to the garden, he was going to greet the rabbi, Jesus, with a kiss. And he did. 
usually an expression of affection perhaps, but not in, not in, in this place. The kiss that Jesus received on that day was different. Jesus, Judas shows up with this crowd, with this multitude, is, is the way one translation puts it. A crowd of, of Sanhedrin, the ruling class, uh, and a crowd of, of Roman soldiers that were at the beck and call of the Sanhedrin, of the high priest. And so they'd come with clubs and with swords to, to arrest this Jesus. These, these religious people that came, um, what, was their, what was their beef with Jesus? Why was it that, that they wanted him dead? And why was it that the, the, the Roman soldiers were willing to go along with it? Questions. Judas comes up and he, he, he does just what he said he was going to do. He goes to Jesus and he plants a kiss on his cheek and he, and he cries out, my rabbi. Now the passage just says rabbi, but that if we were to read it in the original language, we would see that it's a term of, of possession. It's a term of, of my rabbi. You're my rabbi. You're the one that, that I honor. You're the one that I learn from. You're the, you're the one that I respect. That's what the term means. And so he gives him the same kiss that, that a, uh, a, a disciple would have given to his rabbi, a kiss of honor and affection and, and submission to authority. And, and he calls him my rabbi, my Lord. And how ironic that even as he's doing that, he's handing him over to be killed. Betrayal. The kiss is subtle, but the kiss is, is deadly. How ironic that the arrest of Jesus begins with a kiss of honor. What a contrast. And then Peter enters the scene himself and enters the scene and and he takes his own sword now what a disciple of jesus christ was doing with a sword i don't know peter wasn't a soldier peter was a fisherman i mean why didn't he have a flaying knife i don't know but he had he had a sword and he shows up with a sword and he pulls it out and he he aims it at uh, malchus the uh, the servant of the high priest now he hit his ear and he cut off his ear i think that peter was probably aiming for his head or his neck as he was aiming to stop the arrest. Little did he know what he was aiming to do was to stop the word of God from going forward. He was aiming to stop Jesus from accomplishing what he wanted to do. Isn't that what Judas was doing also? In a different way. Judas and the multitude were coming at Jesus to stop the word of God from going forward, to stop Jesus from, from accomplishing his task the suffering, the crucifixion, the paying for your sin and my sin. Uh, Judas, the Sanhedrin, they had no control over Jesus. They had no control over God. That's what grace does, you see. When we come to Jesus Christ because of the work that he's done, because of his grace, then we lose control. We're saying, yes, you get to be the sovereign God. Your plan is better than my plan. There's no way I can be holy enough, good enough for you. I have to have you your finished work on the cross i have to have that and we have that by grace and so grace takes away our control it takes away our control of god it takes away our control of our own life and our own plan many of the plans in a man's heart but the lord directs his path sometimes we we flee from grace and we don't like it because it takes us out of control we can no longer put together a performance plan or a work plan and we can no longer control others and give them the same kind of plan you see, what we typically do is we find something that we are good at 
And if we're good at it and we can accomplish that, then we judge others that can't. So some sin that we've never committed, we're going to put that on someone else. If they've committed it, then surely they must be the worst sinner in the world. The reality is that you and I are all just like Paul, the chief of sinners. We're all that way, and none of us have heaven except for Jesus Christ and the finished work of Christ, and we have that by grace. The reason the Sanhedrin wanted to get rid of Jesus is because he took all of that control away from them. They can no longer control each other. They can no longer control their countrymen. They can no longer control Jews. They can no longer control anything. They couldn't control God. Peter, from a different perspective, is trying to control the outcome. He didn't realize what he was doing. His was a defense of Jesus. Folks, Jesus doesn't need our defense. He certainly doesn't need our violent defense. Oh, listen, we need to know the Word of God. We need to be able to give an answer when we're called upon to give an answer. We do need to do that. We need, we need to understand how to, how to, um, to take Scripture and rightfully rightly exegete and that's just a great big word that means rightly understand and and unpack scripture for the good of others we need to be able to do that um, so that people can understand who jesus is better but it's not that jesus needs us to defend him he can defend himself peter was seeking to stop that in the same or in a different way but still seeking to stop the word of God from going forward. Jesus is very clear. Scripture must be fulfilled. That's what he says here. Scripture has to be fulfilled. He says it in a different way over in John. Uh, John 18, uh, Jesus, uh, or the, John speaks a little bit more about Peter's, uh, Peter's sword play. Uh, there we, we read that Jesus takes the servant's ear and he puts it back on his, on his head, you know, and reattaches it. I wonder if there are any scars. Uh, I, you know what else I wonder? I wonder if this, this, this young man who had lost his ear, Malchus, I wonder, I, I wonder if he became a believer. Do you ever think about that? I mean, these details are here for a reason. Dive into the details. Why was Malchus's name even mentioned in John? It wasn't mentioned in Mark. Did Malchus become a believer in Jesus Christ? And did he have a scar around his ear, maybe as a way to remind him and to remind others what Jesus had done? I don't know. It gives new meaning to the, to the words, he who has an ear to hear, let him, let him hear though, doesn't it? Malchus suddenly had two ears. I wonder if he heard the word of the Lord. Is it necessary that we put aside uh, safety and take up suffering? Well, sometimes that's what our sovereign God calls us to do. You see, even, even the, the suffering, even the, the sword play, all of that is a part of, part of a sovereign's God's plan. What, what we know, you think of the word sovereign, okay? In our, in our culture today, in our country, our world, we think of sovereign as being royalty. We speak, think of a king or a queen, maybe a king or a queen of, of England or Norway or of the past, you know, if you're into history these days. So you're, you're seeing the kings and queens of of old and you're you're thinking that's what a sovereign is well it's bigger than that to be sovereign is to be in complete control of every single bit of every single thing that's going on in your country or your world or in this case the universe nothing's outside of your control if you're the sovereign god so god is very sovereign in this place 
He's a God that is over all of the universe, including the outcome of these events and this and his word being accomplished. So there's a kiss that's sovereign. The, the arrest is sovereign. It's a part of God's plan. Even in John, uh, John chapter, uh, chapter 19 there where we, we read of the, um, the ear that's been taken off and been put back on. Um, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword up. Put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink from this cup? Sometimes I don't want to drink from the cup that God gives to me, but, um, but it's always the best cup available. What would have happened? Think about it. What would have happened if, if, if Peter's swordplay would have been allowed to continue? If he had been allowed to stop the arrest of his Savior, what would have happened? Or even if, even if the, the sword play didn't continue, but Peter wasn't rebuked, kindly rebuked, but still rebuked, still disciplined, what would have happened in Peter's life? He goes on, and he's a disciple, he's a leader in the church later on, and he's discovered, hey, in the garden I can use a sword, and if I don't agree with what's happening, I'll just cut somebody's ear off or cut somebody's hair off. And he becomes a belligerent, autocratic leader. And the grace he's been given by Jesus, he doesn't give to anyone else. Jesus is letting Peter go about his business and cut off the ear of the servant, but at the same time, he's saying to Peter, this is not the way I've called you to lead. Now, we don't see that expressed here, but that's the outcome. Peter learns that you don't lead with a sword. You lead with the grace of Jesus Christ. But the sword play was a sovereign part of, even the leaving, everyone leaving him was a sovereign part of what he was doing. Psalm 88 tells us, reminds us that this, this king would be shunned by his own people. His own followers, the disciples would shun him and, and leave him. The passage bears out again that everyone left him. And, and Mark, unlike the other uh, writers, he, he goes into this, this second part in, in verse 51 and 52. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So what do we know about that guy? Just about nothing. <laughs> Just about nothing. So why has Mark included it there? And, you know, what, what's the purpose for that? There is a purpose. What is it? We know that he was probably a wealthier young man if he had a linen cloth. Otherwise, it would have been just a rough cloth. Uh, we know that, that if there was nothing on underneath, part of the details, but if there was nothing on underneath the linen cloth, he probably had left his house in a hurry and just grabbed whatever was there and, and, and came to follow Jesus, maybe to see what was going on, what the ruckus was about. But even he fled. It reminds me of Genesis in 39 where Joseph is in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife is, uh, is making a pass at Joseph. And Joseph uh, doesn't give in to that. He doesn't give in to the safety of giving in to Potiphar's wife. He takes the route of suffering, knowing what might come out of that. And he runs and he leaves his cloak, his clothing, in the hands of Potiphar's wife as she reaches out to grab him. And he spent two years in prison in the dungeon. Then in the third year, he was raised up from the dungeon. And he led the nation to a place of restoration. 
It reminds me of, uh, of the book of Amos in chapter 2, where we read that there, there will be tragedies that will come uh, as a part of the judgment of Israel that will be so horrific that even the young men will flee and leave their garments behind. The rest, the kiss, the sword, they're all part of what Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit had all planned before the foundation of the world and suffering is a part of that. I don't like suffering. I don't wake up every morning and say, Lord, let's have a suffering day. I wake up in the morning and I want a good day. You know, a safe day, a comfortable day, don't you? And yet, and there's nothing wrong with safety, nothing wrong with comfort. But if we, if we run from God's will because suffering is involved in it, and we run towards safety and comfort because we prefer that over following God, then that safety and that comfort have then become sin. Our, our, our preference for them is the sin. Safety and comfort are great. They're neutral. But if we run from God because we don't like the suffering and we prefer the safety, well, then this, that safety, that comfort, it's a part of the idolatry of our soul. Uh, and it's, it's become, become sin. So why do we, why do we prefer the the safety instead of the suffering well that's just natural who wants pain we want a life of ease and comfort don't we it's better to have food than to be hungry isn't it i think so but if we prefer a life of ease and and comfort and that's that's what we're hungering hungering for in life then my friends don't follow jesus because jesus is going to call you to go places and to go to relationships where that ease and comfort will sometimes have to be put aside if you're looking for a life uh, free from criticism, don't follow Jesus. If you're looking for a, fa- a life of, of, uh, of fame, then, then don't follow Jesus. Listen, you might end up in a life of fame, but that's not what Jesus has promised you. In fact, what Jesus promised us is that if we're going to follow him, we're going to be taking up a cross and we're going to suffer. But that's not a bad thing. See, his calling for you and for me is much higher than a calling for fame. It's a much higher than a calling of, of safety and comfort and financial stability. It's much higher, much greater, much deeper than, than any of that. Frankly, I, Frank, I don't think Jesus cares very much uh, about our safety. I just don't. I don't think he cares very much if we feel safe in a relationship. Now, I'm not talking about physical safety and abuse, eh? God doesn't want us in a place where we're being abused by a spouse or a loved one or, or in a relationship. Nothing like that. But for wanting emotional safety, freedom from criticism um, in the world around us, whether it's at work, because freedom from criticism, freedom from, from pain, freedom from suffering because of who we are in Jesus, I think Jesus would have us put that, that aside and make his name famous instead of our own he calls this something deeper and stronger more missional than our safety i'm reminded of what lucy asked tumnus the fawn in the chronicles of narnia i love lucy uh, so innocent uh, so full of passion for aslan she she looks at, at tumnus and she said glancing at aslan in the distance as he's walking away she asked tumnus is he safe is he safe? Thomas is safe. Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. 
Following Jesus isn't meant to be safe, but it is meant to be good. If you want a life free from suffering, don't follow Jesus. Don't be afraid, but don't follow Jesus. You don't have to be afraid. You know, over 300 times in Scripture, we're, we're told to, to not be afraid, to not be anxious. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We serve a sovereign God. If you're, listen, if you're a Christian, you'll take you places that are good, places that are hard, relationships that are hard, but relationships that are good, relationships that will require suffering at times. We have to put aside our own will for the will of the Father. Thankful that Jesus didn't choose safety on that day, but he chose, he chose suffering. Hebrews 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Is there a purpose for that suffering that we walk into? Well, there is, and um, let's look at a couple of those. You know, one of those would be that, uh, that we would return to Jesus. You know, suffering um, helps us to do that. Uh, we, um, I, I, think of, I think of Eustace. Um, Eustace, again, the Chronicles of Narnia. Eustace uh, was a belligerent, arrogant, mocking, sarcastic, not a kind little young man. Uh, made life difficult for a lot of people. Eustace uh, went, uh, <coughs> excuse me, went to the dragon's lair and he, he put up upon his arm a, a bracelet and, and as he did that, he turned into a dragon. Uh, and so he, he, through, the, through the suffering of being a dragon and being rejected as a dragon, uh, he learns a lesson. And he's, he's ready to return back to, to who he's called to be as a part of that team. But it takes, uh, takes Aslan, who, who takes the, his claws as a lion and rips the scales off of Eustace's body and, re- and returns Eustace to a, a guy that, um, that is a part of the team and, and loves Jesus. It's an illustration of what Jesus does with us sometimes where he, uh, as we read in, again in Hebrews that a father disciplines those that he loves. Maybe it's um, suffering is in your life as a means of shaping you. Uh, we read in, in Proverbs that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God uses each other to shape us and to sharpen us in the same way that a, that a sculptor might, might shape a sculpture. Think of your favorite sculpture, okay? How do you think it came to be? Well, first the artist chooses a, a block of marble or a block of wood, but a block, a block of marble for this illustration. And, and he uh, carefully chooses that marble. And then he has a vision in his mind, his mind or her mind, of what he wants the end product to look like, okay? And then he takes a sharp chisel, and he takes rough sandpaper. Later, he's going to take, you know, softer sandpaper and a softer chisel. But at first, it's a sharp chisel and, a, and rough sandpaper, and he begins to, to chip off everything that doesn't look like the finished product. He wants you to look like himself. Jesus does. And so he chisels away those parts of us that don't look like him. Suffering does that. Sometimes it hurts, but it's always good. Suffering can be discipline, and discipline is good. To make you who God has called you to be. Such was the case with Peter and the sword. 
I'm reminded of a time that I was, I was in college and I worked for Diversify Products in Opelika, a city right next to Auburn. And I worked on the third shift. Um, that was 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. I want you to make that connection, okay? I was a college student at Auburn and had to leave college at night, had to leave campus at night, including Friday nights on game weekends, to go to work at 11 p.m. at night and work all night long. That didn't work so well for my plan. It was very difficult sometimes for me to get there by 11 o'clock. Sometimes it was 11.05, maybe it was 11.10, it was rough. I didn't like that part of, the, of, the, of this third shift stuff. I got there late again and again and again. You know, I think I thought that, um, that I was so good at what I did that I could get away with it. I ran a machine, um, just a simple machine making legs for a weight bench. They had two of those machines working 24 hours a day. So 48 hours worth of machine operation every single day. My role was just a third shift. I was so good at that, though, producing so many legs for those weight benches that they shut down all the other shifts. I produced more in eight hours than they were producing in 40 hours. There was something about my narcissistic heart, my I'm good enough to get away with this heart, that somehow believed I could get to work late, night after night, and it would be okay. The night came when I stepped into the plant and Rusty met me at the door, and he did this, and the look on his face told me this was not gonna be a pleasant conversation. He took me in his office, and he laid out a letter of reprimand for me. And with compassion in his face and even tears in his eyes, which was really moving, this, this big guy that had become a friend of mine who I worked for uh, gave me this letter of reprimand. And he, he basically told me, look, there's a lot of promise there somewhere inside you, but you're, you're undisciplined. And if you keep getting here late, I'm going to have to let you go. That was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I love the discipline of the Lord. And even though Rusty didn't know it, that's what he was being used to do. He was used to being to offer me the discipline of the Lord. And, and so, you know, I began to get there on time uh, every night, night after night. The promotions soon, soon came. I'd built a house of my own mind and my own fame. And, uh, but they, listen, unless you build a house Unless the Lord builds a house, they that build it labor in vain. The Lord has a plan, and it's, it's not our plan. It's great when we come up underneath His plan, but He's not going to ask us for our permission. Maybe the suffering is just for the good of someone else, though. And you might never see that person this side of heaven. You might never know why you suffered in that way. Jesus suffered for the good of someone else. He knew what he was doing before it happened, but it was for the good of someone else. Listen, Jesus had done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Nothing at all. None of us can say that, but Jesus had done nothing wrong. And yet he takes all of our guilt, all of our lack of innocence, he takes all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, all of our evil intent, 
all of our sarcasm, all of our mean words, all of our self-righteous thoughts, all of our judgmental hearts, and our judgmental words, and our judgmental actions. He takes every single bit of our gossip, all of that, and it's tattooed across his chest, it's tattooed across his soul, and he takes that to the cross. He suffers for you and for me. His suffering is for someone else. That's what love does. Suffering has a purpose. It's what the Ecuador Five did. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and their buddies. They suffered for someone else that someone else might know the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven. One of those that, that, were, that were on that team that speared them was a, a guy named Micaiah. Micaiah is not a big man physically. He's, he's a short man, a relatively small man. But oh, is he big spiritually. Uh, Micaiah died last week. Uh, Micaiah is one of those guys, when I get to heaven, I want to sit and I want to hear stories. I want to hear about the journey from the moment that he speared those five American missionaries to the point where he turned his life over to Jesus Christ and he knew the forgiveness of the Lord. I want to see his eyes. I want to hear the story of how he grew in Christ as he discovered the grace of Jesus Christ that was given to him by the suffering of Jesus Christ. Suffering has a purpose. You know what's, what's crazy and ironic is that as Micaiah began to tell his story to others, not just in Ecuador, but as he told his story later on in America over the last couple of decades through the ministry of, of Steve Saint and Stephen Curtis Chapman and others, uh, Micaiah toured with these guys and he told his story of his salvation, that Micaiah suffered for that, that there were people that judged him for telling that story as if he was profiting from it somehow. Micaiah, what a beautiful brother. Jesus welcomed the suffering, um, not blindly, but he welcomed it because of love. God doesn't usually erase our suffering, my friends. He usually leaves it in place. He might ease the suffering. He will help us walk through it, and he will use it to bring about beauty. Suffering or safety? Suffering or safety? Are we going to trust the sovereign God? Which are we going to choose, the suffering or the safety? What will we choose as individuals? What will we choose at EP Church in Annapolis? Listen, our, our vision, our vision is, is seeking the renewal of Annapolis as we ourselves are renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what happens. As we choose the suffering, as we choose to walk with Jesus Christ, even if it brings suffering, even if it brings discomfort in our lives, then we see a city renewed. A friend of mine in Birmingham had a $4 million home, and he, he became convicted that, that instead of seeking that financial comfort, perhaps he should seek the renewal of Birmingham. And so he sold his $4 million home, and he bought a $400,000 home, which I know 400000 might be a lot, but it's still that's one-tenth of what he had, okay? So he sold the $4 million home, and he used the proceeds from that to seek the renewal of the city of Birmingham. How beautiful is that? As we step into the will of God and we say, Lord, we're going to follow you, even if it means suffering, then we ourselves are being renewed by the gospel as we walk under Jesus Christ and we walk closely, intimately with him, and we see him renew 
Annapolis at the same time. We see the gospel of Jesus Christ worked out. God is glorified. People follow Jesus. Lives are transformed. What will you choose? What about you? What about you, not just if you're a believer in Christ, but what about you if you're an unbeliever in Christ? If you have not yet said, Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I want to follow you. What about you? What will you do with this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, what will we do with your son Jesus? Lord, I pray that you'll move on our hearts and our minds so that we follow you more clearly, more intimately. Father, help us to set aside our own idols of, of judgment, our own idols of comfort, our own idols of fame. Help us to set those things aside and run hard after Jesus Christ. Lord, the day's going to come when we get to see you face to face. Until that day, Lord, be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our words, in the way we live, in the way we love. Lord, be, be glorified in the way we think and the way we thrive for your glory. Father, if there's anyone that doesn't yet know you that's listening to this, Father, change that even now. Lord, grab a hold of their heart. And help them to walk in newness of life. What an adventure that will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.